of where our encouragement is, as monastics is to speak from the moment. So Ajahn Chah was very strong in this. He was very clear that uh, the monastic sangha, when we give teachings, we should speak from the moment, not, not uh, with notes and uh, a pre-prepared talk. So there's advantages to pre-prepared talks in that they can be very clear and coherent and uh, the teacher can really know, feel confident in what they're teaching and uh, and uh, when one's just giving a talk from the moment it can be a little uh, uncertain what's going to happen, what's going to come out, is it going to be clear, are people going to understand, is anything going to come out at all? <laughs> so it's a little bit of an act of faith. But uh, one theme that's come up this evening from a few different people is uh, how do you keep the incentive to practice? How do you keep the mind on the practice in daily life? So it's interesting that people ask me as a, as a nun because I'm a you know I live in a monastery. I, I wear these robes, shave my head every morning. I get up, I bow to the Buddha first thing I do. And the image of the Buddha. And the kind of whole life is oriented around practice. But it's also not a, a life of, you know, hours and hours of meditation most of the time. In fact, it's hours and hours of emails, administration, um, speaking with people. You have a lot of, a lot of this kind of stuff happens at the monastery, our little, our little monastery. So, um, so, I can give my reflections and you might need to interpret a little bit for your particular life situation because well, we'll all be, we all have different ones but I, I've lived in the monastery you know, a long time now and uh, so I might be a little out of touch. But anyway, I'll say what I have to say. So while I was sitting in the meditation just reflecting on this, uh, this question of how to bring a sense of urgency to the practice. Because I think uh, what can happen is that we, you know, we come to a, a meditation evening. So this is a wonderful group. Every week you can come here, you can meet together, listen to a talk, sit together and then listen to a talk. Once a month have a meal together and get to know each other and go home and maybe kind of forget about most of it or maybe remember a little sentence or a 
or to be mindful once in a, a while and then you come back again the next week. A little bit like going to church <laughs> if you're not careful. So, uh, so um, there are people who go... Sorry, I have to just clarify that. There are, my mother's actually a very... Um, genuinely practicing Christians. So I, I, I don't want to say that uh, going to church means that you don't practice. But, uh, you know, people can just go to church on a Sunday or go to synagogue on a Saturday um, or go to mosque. And, and you know, you do the, the um, you know, the, the important showing up and being there and the, the right chants and the... And the prayer or in, in this case the meditation and then you go home and you kind of it's sort of there you know in the back of your mind but it's not really forefront so there's not many people who are called to do what I've done you know to just kind of leave everything and, and try and do it you know, uh, practice 24/7, and that I must say is, is a hard. It's not I'm, not that I'm anywhere there at this. Even after 20 years of, of practice, I'm not uh, able to sustain mindfulness 24/7. But uh, I'm just reflecting on what actually inspires a sense of urgency in the practice. So, in as long as we have a sense of this is me. Um, this is where I come from, this is my past, maybe I've got out of the really difficult situations I was in and now I'm on this Dharma practice path and I've got this support, I come every week, I, you know, I, I maybe keep some of the precepts and uh, it's kind of basically better than it was before I started to practice. If we, if we kind of, it's okay to have that way of thinking but that's, it's got a sort of a dullness to it. And uh, you know, one of the real central pieces of the, the teaching is the teaching on impermanence. So as I was sitting here in the meditation, it's like, well, what brings, what for me brings a sense of urgency, of, of, of uh, presence, what, what sharpens my mind. And what really sharpens the mind is a sense of recognizing impermanence. So I think for when, when we first hear about the teaching of impermanence, it can have the opposite effect. You can think, well, everything's impermanent, so nothing really matters. So it doesn't really matter what I do, actually, because everything's impermanent anyway. It's all kind of pointless. So that's kind of picking up impermanence in the wrong way. And... Uh, the, the, the truth of it is, you know, we, we, we are born, we are sentient, we feel, we have relationships. People matter to us, affect us. And at some point we're going to have to let go of that. So, you know, people die. So as, as I was sitting in the meditation, a memory came up to me of uh, being a little girl in the in a, going to school in our car. We always had old bangers, old beat-up old cars. And I was going to school in the car. My brother was sitting next in the front seat. I was in the back seat, and and suddenly my brother fell out of the car. He tumbled out of the car onto the street, and my mother kind of stopped the car. Oh! 
And and as as that happened, suddenly, you know, I met, you might have had the experience. Time slowed down, so suddenly everything was kind of going in slow motion. And what was probably about six seconds was like several minutes, where I, where I was playing through all of these things that I've that I'd said. I wasn't a very nice little sister. Things that I'd said to my brother, things that I'd done to my brother, and you know, things that were not very nice, kind of a little bit mean, that I'd said or done to my brother and oh my god maybe he's dead and so this this was playing out in in at that time my mum stopped the car it was out in a rural road we lived in the in the sticks and my my and my brother got back in the car and he'd actually been eating his sandwich he's having his he's having a sandwich he hadn't had time for his breakfast and he just said I dropped my sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so we were all like, Phew, okay, he's all right. <laughs> and uh, so he got back in the car, we went off to school, and everything was okay. And, <laughs> and, and in, the, in those moments, there was this recognition. I don't know how old I was, maybe eight or something. But there was this recognition of how precious that was, how precious my brother was, and how precious my relationship with him was, and how precious life is. And that I had actually been using it in not a very good way, all of those things. And then I didn't know how to change the way I was doing things. So actually very quick, not, not, not immediately, but kind of pretty soon, I just kind of went back into the old habits of relationship with my brother, which were not that nice. My poor brother, he's bigger than me though. He could get his own back a bit later on. <laughs> and um, so if we don't know... You know, we can have those moments of awakening where we see, like, this life is really precious. This moment is really precious. How we're relating to this person, the fact that this person is in our life is, is really precious. We can have moments where we see that, and then maybe we don't know how to sustain it. So, particularly in relationships where we, we see the same person every day, it's like, oh, yeah, oh you know. You get up in the morning, maybe forget to say good morning, or you, you know, someone comes home from work, you don't ask them how they've been, how the day's been, because it's just like it's just them, you know. They're there all the time, and you take each other for granted, you know. Or maybe at work, or even, even in the, you know, in the checkout of your local store, maybe you see the same person every time you go shopping, but you don't bother really to say much because it's just always oh, just them, you know. Maybe you said hello once, that's good enough. And this is kind of missing the, the, the reality of the preciousness of this moment. So, you know, one thing that's very helpful is to just to bring to mind, which I, which I do quite often, bring to mind, what if this was the last day that I'm alive? What if I'm going to die tonight? So I'm, I'm, there I am again in a, in a habitual way of relating. A, a habitual, maybe unskillful, not as unskillful as I was when I was eight, maybe, but you know, maybe, maybe it could be a little bit more clear, could be a little bit more kind, could be a little bit more patient, could be a little bit more wise. And because I think it's just the same old thing, it's been going on for a long time, I just do the same old thing again. And then I remember well, what if this is, you know, this is the last day we have together? How would I want to relate? How would I want it to end? Or if I'm saying goodbye to somebody, somebody's leaving, and 
I say, all right, bye. Or maybe I don't even bother going to the door and saying goodbye because I was going to see them tomorrow. Actually, I don't know if I'm going to see them tomorrow. So the reflection on impermanence as a support for, the, for bringing the edge, the, the clarity and the preciousness to our practice. And um, there was a mention in the announcements that you know, if, if people are struggling, feeling bored, or, or having difficulty sitting through the talk, don't worry, impermanence will strike at 9.30. Well, impermanence is striking right now. Impermanence never stops striking. Every moment, every moment. So the what um, you know, the dull edge of our practice comes when we think of ourselves as a person who's um, you know going going on in time, and then we have this idea that you know a human life is a certain length, and so we've got however many more years. You know, it's an idea, but it doesn't generally work quite like that. We don't know. We don't know when our last night will be, when our last meal will be, our last breath. We don't know, actually. So, just to bring to mind, you know, this could be the last day of my life. And then, you know, can look at how have I spent this day? Is there any way I would like, if this really was the last day of my life, I know it's in the evening, so it's kind of a little bit, it's kind of it's quite good to bring it up in the morning. But, you know, if this really was the last day of my life, is there anything I would like to have done differently today? Have I dismissed somebody that I actually could have paid attention to? Have I been looking at my watch waiting for the meditation to end? How much longer have we got? Oh. You know? So you can do that, but what's the point, you know? And then it ends, and then what? We're still here. It's still, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, just looking at what we're doing. What are we doing with our our time, with this this opportunity? The Tibetan tradition, they really make much of of the, the... the preciousness of this human life. So when I first heard that, I wasn't so convinced because I didn't feel greatly uh, joyed to be in this situation of being a human being on the planet. I felt it was a rather something I'd like to have uh, had another another opportunity, you know, some something a bit less challenging. <laughs> but uh, but over time, I've really come to appreciate this this precious opportunity. And I've been lucky enough to, that the, the Dharma appeared relatively early in my life. So I've been very fortunate and to be able to follow that and, and deepen it and keep learning from the teachings. It's a, it's an, it never stops. You know, basically until you're enlightened, it, the learning never stops. The opportunity never stops. The training never stops until the mind is really free. So, uh, there's this kind of, you know, the, the, the sense of the, the preciousness of this opportunity is, is really is very, very poignant, very clear. And still, you know, there are times in my life where things are really challenging. And maybe I'm stuck in a situation with, with um, 
someone who I find very difficult, you know, and and there and I feel like phew, my life would be much easier if if that person wasn't there, you know. So that's the that's the way of of missing the opportunity of, of that's presenting itself right now. So rather than doing that, it's, it's much more useful to think. This is the perfect opportunity for practice. It always is. It always is. There's never a time when it isn't. And there, there are certainly some conditions that are more conducive. You know that, that are. You know we go to this like the forest refuge. You can go and take a long retreat, and that's really beneficial. Or a spirit rock IMS. We can go into retreat, and. Um, Quiet and the mind go deeper. It's very beneficial. It's great. It's wonderful that there are these opportunities. But it's not that we can only practice in those situations or only practice when we're here on a Thursday night. It's every moment, every moment that we're awake is an opportunity for practice. So it can often feel like it isn't, you know. We're busy, we've got to we engage, we've got to do things. We think, well, I haven't got time for practice because I'm busy doing things. But, you know, what is it in us that thinks that not bringing presence, mindfulness, and clarity to what we're doing, you know, there isn't time to bring clarity to what I'm doing because I'm busy, you know. It's like, no, I think it might work better if there's clarity, you know, if there's mindfulness, presence. So mindfulness doesn't mean having to do things very slowly. It means having awareness. Having awareness of my motivation, of what I'm doing, of of what's compelling me to do what I'm doing. So I was eating my meal today. We we only eat in the morning, so we have breakfast and we have a meal before midday. I was eating my meal and at some point after a few mouthfuls I realized Craving is eating this meal, not mindfulness. Craving is eating this meal, and so craving is so. So, like, craving is feeding craving, and that just leads to more and more craving. So, I suddenly noticed it. It's like, whoa! Hang on a minute, slow down. Okay, bring mindfulness. Bring mindfulness. And, and first of all, of course, you've got to bring mindfulness to the craving, and that's kind of unpleasant. And and maybe you've got ideas of, you know, I shouldn't be like that. You know, that makes it more complicated. So just being aware of all of the all of that stuff, you know, the craving, the judgment, the momentum, the volition, bringing that into consciousness, and then there's awareness, awareness of craving. And once there's awareness of craving, you're on the path. You're there is the you're, you're walking the path of, of awakening. And as you strengthen that awareness, the craving, at least you know, today, started to calm down, subsided. And then I could, it could be mindfulness, mindfulness of feeding this body, feeding the body so that I can practice, making good use of the food, not indulging, not overeating. So it's like, oh, mindfulness kind of came to the rescue. And uh, you know we can do that at any moment, and it's not to wait until conditions are right before we, you know, bring awareness to our situation. So it's quite an extreme example, but I, I know a number of Tibetan nuns who have practiced with, um, uh, like Western nuns in the Tibetan tradition, who have practiced with Tibetan monks, 
And uh, some of those monks have spent time in prison in Tibet. And this uh, friend, this nun, was telling me about one monk who was one of her teachers who had been some incredibly long time in prison. So he, he was in prison for, for a, you know, a ridiculously small thing. And then he was put into one prison for a long time, and then he was moved to another prison. And he was you know, treated really horrendously. So there was sh- legs, the f- feet were shackled, so he could just move one foot at a time, like one step at a time. And, and uh, there was um, several people to one room, and uh, there was a system where I think it was every day one of the guards would come in and they would ask each of the each of the prisoners to basically to say what the other prisoners had done wrong and and if they didn't say something they would get beaten so everybody was in the same situation where they had to say something that that person did that and they're all living together every day in this in this situation and uh, you know what happened was and understand there was an understanding between those people, those prisoners. They all understood that they have to do it because if they don't, they'll get beaten maybe to death. So there's no choice. And and they would choose the lightest, the smallest possible thing they could find. And then those other people would be punished for that thing. And they all knew that they were all do. This was, you know, nobody wanted to harm anybody, but this was the situation they were in. And. Uh, this nun was, was you know, speaking to the, to the monk and, and she was saying, oh gosh, it must have been so awful, it must have been so terrible for you. And he said, you know, the most, the most terrible thing was, you know, we, we, we just, the most terrible thing was I would think about the, the, the prison guards. He said, the prison guards, oh, oh, so much suffering, so much suffering. That was the really painful bit, to think of the terrible karma that those prison guards were making by doing this, this awful, setting up this awful situation for the prisoners. So this is someone who lived in that situation for years. And, you know, he didn't come out of it saying, you know, with, with bitterness or um, having lost faith in the practice or, um, you know, wanting to get revenge on the guards. He came out with incredible compassion because he, he, he understood, you know, we are all human beings. We are all the same, actually. We're all the same. We all have the same potential. We all have the awakened mind. We all have the possibility to awaken. And we use this opportunity in different ways. So some people completely miss it altogether. Many people, most people, actually. And then, you know, when you have the teaching, when you have the tools and the understanding and the perspective of the Dharma, then even the most incredibly challenging situation you can use for practice. So I'm hoping that most of us don't ever have to go into such extreme situations, you know. Most of our challenges are kind of irritations, gripes, niggles, you know. And they can get really, really big in our minds because we have this idea that they shouldn't be there that life should be different to this. But uh, life is challenging and irritating. (laughs) You know, we're sensitive. 
So it is like that. And it's learning how to use this in a way that's transformative rather than just, you know, bracing ourselves and waiting until the right conditions come, you know, that we can then practice. Wait till we're in the forest refuge, then we can practice. Wait till we're at Spirit Rock with the deer and the beautiful landscape, then we can practice. And we can, and it's wonderful support, but we can practice with everything. And there's also, uh, came to mind um, one of the senior nuns, one of my senior nuns in England, in the community that I lived in in England, Ajahn Chandasiri. There was a time when uh, she was about to go away to teach. I think she was teaching a weekend retreat. And just before she went, she got really sick. And she was really frustrated. She was thinking, this is really inconvenient, you know. I've got to go away to teach. There weren't, it wasn't that often that teaching invitations, you know, like engagements came up in that way. And then she got sick just before. And she's like, this is really inconvenient. I've got to go to teach. And I'm sick. And uh, it's a really bad time to get sick. And then she thought, well, I guess, you know, every time is a bad time to get sick. There is no kind of convenient time to get sick. It's always going to get in the way of my plans. And probably when I die, it's going to be an inconvenient time to die too. <laughs> so, you know, instead of feeling like there's something wrong, it's like the, the, the being sick suddenly became a teaching on the, the perfection of the moment. Being sick belongs. Being sick is part of this experience. And she went off and she taught the retreat. And she was, you know, not very well and she needed medicine and maybe wasn't quite as, as uh, had, didn't have quite as much energy as she would if she had been well. But there, there was an important insight there. You know, getting old, having achy body is inconvenient. But it's a teaching. You know, it's a, the, this body is our teacher, as it is, in its perfect imperfection. It's our teacher. If we use that, if we pay attention in the right way. So, you know, notice the times when you're thinking, if this was other than how it was, everything would be all right. If this was other than how it was, I would be happy. This is a, this is a, an indication that you're looking in the wrong way. See if you can turn that around, look in a different way. See if you can investigate what is going on now. What is my relationship to what is going on now? Am I averse? Am I confused? Am I frightened? Am I wanting more? Now have a look. What, what's the attitude that you're bringing to the situation? You can catch it in any moment. You can't necessarily stop it immediately. But if you bring awareness to what's going on, like I was speaking about the meal, bringing awareness to craving, you turn that around, you start to transform craving, feeding, craving, to awareness, craving dissolving in awareness, losing momentum in awareness. So it's the same with any, any of those, say, unwholesome qualities. When we bring awareness to them, even to confusion, to fear, to anger, when we bring awareness to those qualities of mind, 
they can dissolve, they can kind of run themselves out, slow down, wear out in awareness. And then when we identify with them and take hold of them and become them or judge them, try to push them away, try to make them make ourselves different, we're kind of still feeding them. We're still buying into the story. So bringing awareness to our experience. It's, it's every moment is an opportunity. And then there's the, the interesting kind of quality of, you know, when we really develop that more and more strongly, the, uh, the story of me and mine kind of doesn't have the same momentum. It doesn't have the same reality. And that can be a little bit scary. So... Uh, I think I experienced that in that story I was telling you about, about my brother falling out of the car. For a moment, my relationship to him, I could see through it, and there was something else that was fully present and aware and knew that that was just a kind of rubbish thing that I was doing in order to be somebody. And it didn't make any sense, actually. And then for a moment, there was a knowing of that. And then there was kind of not knowing what to do with that knowing, what do you do with that? Who, are, who am I then if I'm not my brother's ir- irritating little sister? You know, then, then who am I? I don't, I don't know. So better just do that again because then at least I'm somebody. So can, we kind of do that all the time. You know, this, is a sort of, this is what we get stuck in. So it's learning to be the process. Be the not knowing kind of an act of faith. Be the, the open question. Be the, the space within which life can unfold. So it's not that we, we become completely bland and nothing when we're not reasserting our personality. We're actually much more interesting, actually. There's much more character, curiously enough. And the, you know, it's like the, the truth of what we are can live through us. So uh, we think that we have to create ourselves. And our whole society tells us, you know, from the moment we're born, really, you've got to be somebody, you've got to make yourself into something, you know, you've got to keep it going, you've got to be better, more successful. You've got to, you know, even, even when you die, you've got to leave something behind that people will know about, you know. <laughs> so... It's kind of feels scary to be just this, just this, in this moment. And this is changing all the time, if we let it. So it's kind of exciting, actually. Just as I say it, I feel like, woo, it's like an adventure. You know, you just don't know quite what's going to happen next. You don't know who you're going to be in the next five minutes. It's quite wonderful. So, so taking the risk, you can do it. Just you don't don't feel like you've got to do it all the time. Just take a risk and experiment with. Who am I when I'm not asserting myself? Even if I'm doing it quietly in my mind, 
What is it to just be fully open to this? And this might be, it might be wonderful, it might be nothing very interesting, it might be really challenging. It's all good. It's all this. It's all perfect. It's all changing. So when we practice in this way, a certain confidence arises with the awareness itself, with the quality of awareness. There's a a confidence grows in 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 the mind, in the heart. And that confidence can see us through all kinds of situations. So when we kind of shore ourselves up, make ourselves strong and tough and brace ourselves against life, then we're very vulnerable. We very easily break. But if we can be with the the moment, with the the process, then uh, we have like the strength of water. And water, drops of water, repeated drops of water can wear through deep rock. And flow of water also can, can make its way through mountains. And as it makes it way, its way through, it gets more and more purified and, and gathers minerals. And uh, you know, water can be like a great ocean. We have the power of an ocean. It can have the stillness of a lake. So it's kind of, in some ways, it's learning to be like water and to know what is the appropriate movement in this moment. Maybe it's to be persistently, to keep on going little by little. Or maybe there's a need to really just give yourself totally in this moment, like a great wave. So, you know, we have to use our wisdom, the wisdom that we all have, to connect with that again. We all have it. It's not, it's not outside of ourselves. It's this natural quality. So to come back to this intuitive wisdom, this knowing that uh, can meet the moment. So we can't do that when we're putting all our energy into being somebody, doing something. It's a very limited way of being. And sometimes we have to do that. But then there can be a knowing. Okay, this is what I'm doing now because this is what's needed now. And then move into the bigger space. So I came here on the BART today. And uh, it's a nice opportunity to move into that space. Because I don't have to talk to anybody. There's all these people, there's a lot going on. It's very interesting. And... Just uh, today, just very clearly, this sense of we're all, all of these people, this incredibly diverse group of people, we all have the same quality. There's the same life running through us. There's the same potential for awakening in each person. And you can see some people may be more obscured than others, but it's, just, it's in there, it's in everybody, just the same. So that can also be a really good practice to uh, you know, to see the Buddha nature in everyone. So in the beginning, I was talking about uh, churches and synagogues and mosques and so on. And I know in the the uh, Christian tradition, there's a tradition of seeing God in each person. 
You know, so when you meet somebody, you see the divine in each person. And in the Hindu tradition, it's the same. You can see whichever particular name you might, they might be giving to, to the, the, the essence, let's say, to, to see that in each person. So you're not seeing the, the rational, you know, this person, their age, their race, their class, their, whether you like them or don't like them, whether they're attractive or not. All of that, you're going beyond that to see the true nature. So it's something, you know, I just encourage you to, to play with that a little bit. There are many opportunities walking down the street, sitting in the, on, the, on the bart, maybe at your work. There's many opportunities just, just to experiment with that quality and to see everyone, everyone has the potential to awaken. Can I see that instead of seeing all the other stuff? And maybe try it with strangers first. And then uh, if you get a little bit good at that, then try it with your really people you live with, people you're close to, people who you bang up against. And don't forget to do it with your own being. It's always here. So we have uh, another few minutes, or ten minutes or so. So if anyone would like to ask any questions or challenge anything I've said, please go ahead. Yes. Thank you. Um, I was saying that I was taking care of my two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter today, and she is a bundle of desires and no's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what was really interesting to me is that the couple of times when I really had to thwart her desire, she just wept with mm-hmm. the most profound, deep lament. You know, oh, it was yes. really moving to me mm-hmm. how how yeah. much that affected her. And I was reflecting on how that desire to have what I want mm-hmm. seems like a bar to to my practice, or like, an, you know, kind of an interference, a real or tremendous distraction anyway. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if you could comment on that, yeah. that part of us. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's very, very strong. But as you said that, I remembered being a little girl, actually, was like, because <laughs> you don't understand when you're at that age. You don't understand why can't, you know, I need this, I want this. Why isn't it happening, you know? And, uh, and then as we grow up, we kind of start to realize, oh, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And we can't always get what we want. And, um, so that, that we develop more equanimity with it. But still, it's, uh, you know, desire is very strong. And uh, I think the, the, the core of that is the, is the delusion, really, that if I get what, what I want, I will be happy. Then I'll be, then I'll be content. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I can be comfortable and peaceful if I get what I want. And it's a, basically it's a core delusion. Because, you know, how many times have you got what you want already in this lifetime? <laughs> and yet that craving still arises. And uh, so it's looking at that, at that, the root of craving. Because if we believe that satisfying our craving will lead to peace we're going to keep keep following it again and again and 
you know, if we actually just look at our experience, we can see that what happens is there's craving, there's reaching out to get what I want, there's getting what I want. There's a sense of relief, of joy maybe, satisfaction for a little while, and then it's gone. And then maybe what we've got is no longer interesting, or maybe it's, you know, it's been consumed or whatever. And then, okay, now what? So just so like following it through the whole process. Maybe this, this is the, the, the key, is to next time that that feeling arises, which may be very soon, I want to, you know, I want this for myself. I want to have, then really consciously follow it through and go out and get, if it's, you know, within reason, get what you want, and as long as it's not breaking any of the precepts. And... Uh, and see, you know, stay aware with the whole process of, of, of moving towards it, reaching out, getting it, making it part of you in whatever way that is, whether it's in your house or in, in whatever, wearing it or eating it or whatever it is, watching whatever it might be, making it part of you, feeling the gratification, and then recognizing the chain, noticing as that gratification starts to kind of change and then the, and then there's maybe a sense of boredom or irritation or <coughs> desire arises again you know one of those things will come and then recognizing that you know and, th- and then what do i do i follow this now you know is that is that going to bring me satisfaction so following it through and uh, and as part of that i think is very very important particularly as western people in this wealthy country not just following through our own experience, but following through what does this cost? What is the cost of this thing that I want? So the other day I had a frappuccino for the first time <laughs> at Starbucks. <laughs> I hadn't had one before. I probably won't have one again, actually, but it was, it was a good experience. <laughs> and, then, uh, <laughs> and I was drinking it and I, and, then, and I was enjoying it, but I was thinking, what, what is the real cost of this frappuccino, actually? I had I had my little travel mug, so I didn't have the plastic lid, and the str- I had a straw. I brought it back for recycling. <laughs> but you know, I was thinking, well, what is actually the co- real cost of this of this frappuccino? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it, it's it's much more than than the money that was paid for it. So I think that's also part of it to look at. You know, when I it's not just about gratifying my desires, but what is that costing? And I think that's a very important thing that we now at this time all of us not just people here in this room but all of us in america in europe in australia all in the in the so-called developed countries need to really really pay attention to what is the cost of our satisfaction our enjoyment because you know a lot of a lot of it is at, at the expense of other people's suffering so like um when, when we first moved here, um, you know, one of the things we can eat in the evening is, is strangely enough, is plain chocolate. So uh, we, we don't have a meal in the evening, but there are a few little things you can have, like cheese, plain chocolate, sugar. And uh, we discovered Hershey's chocolate. And it's kind of, maybe, you know, it's kind of sweet. It's kind of, you know, it's uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we discovered Hershey's chocolate. I was like, mmm, that's nice. So, and we had a friend who'd always ask us, is there anything you need? And we said, mm, yeah, we'd like some Hershey's chocolate. And, 
And then, uh, and then I came across this, um, this article about um, that Hershey's were blatantly, not, not even hiding it, were blatantly using slave labor, child slave labor, labor and also slave labor in, in the U.S., and not even, you know, when they were called on it, they weren't even apologizing. They were like, yeah, well, you can't run a country like this. With, uh, uh, sorry, you can't run a, that's a Freudian slip. You can't run a company like this without doing that, you know. So, yeah, that's what we do. And so we said to our friend, you know, we gave her a printout of this, of this information. We said, you know, please don't buy us Hershey's chocolate anymore because we, even it's nice and we can't have many nice things in the afternoon. It's, a re- it's, not, it's not that nice. It's not worth it. We don't want to have our pleasure at the expense of somebody else's, you know, deep suffering. So get to know what's behind the things that give you pleasure. And that can really change your craving to compassion. And the more you know, the more we know the reality, then the more there's a sense of wanting to change that. And that can also be in this with people and it can also be with the environment, you know, like the true cost of of having a nice, comfortable temperature in, in our house. So at, at Aloka Vihara, sometimes if anyone who comes knows it can be a bit cold. We live out in the Sunset District. At the moment it's kind of winter out there. So, you know, it can get kind of cold. And we have a heat, we have a heating system, but we don't keep it warm. And generally we keep it pretty cool and then when people come we warm, we, we, we put the heating up and then everyone says, oh, it's so cold here. But we actually put the heating up already. <laughs> so uh, just to, you know, it's not, not that you have to live, you know, freezing cold with a woolly hat on all the time, but just to look at, well, what's the cost, what's the bigger, not the cost from my bank account, but what is the cost of keeping this at this temperature? What is the cost of driving where I want, when I want. What is the cost of flying? You know, look at the, the, the true cost of what we are doing, what you're doing. And that is a great incentive to uh, let go of some of the craving. I'd like to end with a chant that we do every evening at the monastery. Some of you might know it. It's the sharing of merits and uh, it's really important in our practice to recognize the the goodness that we're generating you know the the strength whether it's whether we're just even if we've had a whole day that's been really challenging we've had all, all kinds of you know fear desire hatred irritation aversion going on and we've stayed present and we haven't spat it out at anyone that's already a good day as the practice is strengthening through that, and then and it and it and we're weakening those tendencies in our mind. So that's already good. And and if we can, you know, actively do good, actively be generous, patient, compassionate, then uh, that's also great. And then there's the the quality of of staying really fully present with the the mind states that arise. It's like a kind of a burning up, letting things just be there and feel them until they pass. This is all really, really powerful work. Sometimes when we're right in the middle of it, it feels like 
oh my goodness, I'm such a mess. But if there's a, a awareness with this, if we bring awareness to what's going on in the mind, it's, this is powerful, transformative work. So we can consciously bring to mind any merits that we may have cultivated over this time together, over this day, over this week, over this lifetime. Consciously bring them to mind and share them liberally with all beings. Let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest devas and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice. And through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.